from the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer, your host. Across America, 68% of incarcerated people with a medical condition go without care in our local jails. Put simply, incarcerated people are often denied life-sustaining and life-saving healthcare treatment. To make matters worse, carceral facilities are increasingly used as a response to treat those with mental and physical illnesses. But in reality, they are doing the opposite. After an arrest, those who can't immediately post bail can spend days on end without medical services. Until they gather enough money to buy their freedom, incarcerated people can suffer from poor health care with dire consequences, including in some cases, death. Nothing reveals this experience more than the story of 54-year-old Dexter Berry. Last year, in November of 2022, Dexter was experiencing a renewed sense of health and stability in his life. This was all thanks to a heart transplant that he received after waiting for an organ for 12 years while battling ongoing heart complications. Yeah, and he fought and fought. He went through his ups and downs with this whole process just to be given that organ. You know, like I went through, me and Janelle went through feeling like we were going to lose our dad multiple times. Multiple times. And for to see my father fight so hard to get where he was, it's like, you know, I thought he was going to die years ago. I never thought he was going to live to see his grandkids or help raise them or, you know, experience any memories with them. And to see him actually able to go through that, you know, I give thanks for it. But it's like multiple times I thought I was going to lose my father. And even though I went through it multiple times, you know, feeling like I was preparing myself, nothing could have prepared me for actually losing. Those are the voices of Dexter Berry's children. My name is Dexter Berry Jr., son of Dexter Berry. My name is Janelle King. I'm the oldest daughter of Dexter Barry. In November of 2022, Dexter Barry, their father, got into a verbal dispute with his neighbor in Jacksonville, Florida. The incident resulted in a misdemeanor arrest that kept him in jail for two days without anti-rejection medication for his transplant, despite several pleas for it. Three days after he was released from jail, Dexter died from cardiac arrest that was caused by an acute rejection of his heart. Dexter's story is reflective of sweeping failures in the carceral system. Unfortunately, his story is one of many. Now, Janelle and Dexter Berry Jr. are amplifying their dad's story to get justice and prevent what happened to him from happening to anyone else. My dad was my best friend. He was everything. I was always around him. I can always go to him and talk to him about anything. Wasn't very judgmental. He always gave it to me straight. He never sugarcoated it. But I mean, for the most part, you know, we had a lot of fun together, you know, riding bikes, motorcycles from, you know, being a father myself, you know, it's, I learned a lot from him. So, I mean, he was pretty dope cat. Tana, what would you add? So for me, I didn't meet my dad until I was about 20, but since he's been or since he was in my life i mean we spoke every day i went to visit him as often as i could he was a good person he was a good father he always you know called to check up on us make sure we were good 
I don't know. I miss my dad. Yeah, absolutely. What were some of the things that he loved or interested him? Motorcycles. Yeah, motorcycles was number one. Motorcycles and cars. Yeah. He was a Mercedes man. A Mercedes man. Expensive taste. Fast motorcycles, fast cars. He loved them. Whether it was riding them, driving them, or just looking at them. The thrill of it. Was he a thrill seeker or just, just in the car way? Most definitely. If he was on his motorcycle, he was popping wheelies. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's always important to talk about who people are to us when we're talking about these things because it's hard to talk about the hard ways that people leave us and it's important to keep their legacy alive. That's like what all of this is about. So Dexter was sick for some time and a major part of his story comes from being an organ transplant recipient. I myself am a two-time organ transplant recipient as well, which, you know, I say only to say that I have some insight as to how the system works and it's really quite an arduous process. The wait can be very long for people waiting for organs. Our dad waited 12 years. Yeah, an extremely long time. I think that's part of what struck me when I saw your father's story, I think originally on Twitter through the transplant community. I think, you know, my reaction was very similar to what you were just speaking about, both of you, is that when seeking, when needing an organ, right, when you're waiting for so long, the amount of times that you're fearing death is it's that whole time. <laughs> it's really that whole time. There's such a thin line for folks who are waiting for organs to understand, which we'll get into, the circumstances of around your father's death, given how long and how hard he fought. That just really, I think, breaks my heart and is just it's just unfathomable and deeply, deeply unfair. I was wondering if you might share a little bit about his journey kind of leading up to transplant in the waiting time. What was the underlying issue and what was life like for your dad? Um, My father was diagnosed with congestive heart failure in 2018. He was in Virginia. He was working. And um, where he was working, the manager there was a family friend and she realized, you know, hey, you don't look like yourself. Um, I need you to go to the hospital. He's like, well, I can't get in there, you know, see my doctor because they have no openings. She took it upon herself to call the doctor and told the doctor, hey, look, he works for me. He looks real bad. I need you guys to get him in there ASAP. And when she called, they seen him the next morning and um, they ran a couple tests. And when they ran the test, they realized that the I don't know exactly what it is, but basically the tubes in your heart that brings that circulates the oxygen was ruptured and mm. it was bad. It was bad, bad. Like there was no saving him. I think he got medevaced from Newport News, Virginia to Jacksonville, Florida. And that's when the real journey started. That's when he had got the LVAD and he was walking around with his little man purse. <laughs> the LVAD that Dexter Jr. is referring to is a left ventricle assistive device. It's essentially a battery-operated heart that allowed Dexter Sr. to stay alive while waiting for his heart transplant. You can imagine how cumbersome and painful it is to have a device pumping your heart for you. 
No one knows how long and how well it will work for you. So when Dexter received his new heart from an organ donor, what he really got was a second chance at life. That's really what he called it, his second chance. He, he used to say, oh, if I ever made you mad, um, I'm a new person now, so we're, we're okay. <laughs> he used to tell me that all the time. I used to be like, you remember that one time? If I made you mad before, I'm a new person now, you know, we, we got to let that go. He just, he was trying to make the best of it. Every time he went to a checkup and I asked him, hey, what the doc saying? Uh, the doctor said I'd be here another 20 years. <laughs> and I'd be like, cool, you know, that's what I like to hear, you know? He was in very good spirits. When the events that led to Dexter's death took place, it had only been two years since his transplant. Janelle and Dexter Jr. walked us through what happened last November. Okay, so as I remember it, um, I want to first start off by saying that neither my brother or I knew that dad was arrested or even went to jail. We didn't know until he had come out. My dad had Wi-Fi that he was sharing with his neighbor. And they had an agreement where the neighbor was going to pay him X amount of money a month, um, you know, to help him pay for it. The first month, neighbor paid. It was fine. Second month, it was kind of like, I don't have the money, but I'll get it to you at some point. And then the third month came around and that's when the argument ensued, apparently. And the neighbor just was like, um, I don't have the money to give to you. So... During the argument, I guess the neighbor might have spoken to my dad in some type of way. So daddy said something along the lines of, don't make me F you up. And he was talking about the fact that the guy was using his Wi-Fi, but not paying him the money that they both agreed upon. After he told him to, you know, hey, if you can't pay, just just get off the Wi-Fi, you know, it's cool. So apparently because my dad had said that, the guy had felt threatened and I guess that's why he had called the police. But daddy didn't put hands on him. He didn't try to fight him. He even left after the argument to go about his business, cool off, run some errands. And I think he was probably gone about like an hour and a half, two hours. When he returned, that's when the cops were there. He gets out his car. He talks to Officer McKeon. Officer McKeon states that he's not going to go to jail, but he has to cuff him um, just to detain him to talk or whatever. I don't remember what happened exactly after that. Reports from the Tributary, a Northeast Florida journalism collective that broke the story, shows the body cam footage from the arrest. The arresting officer, J.J. McKeon, told Dexter he was going to take a ride for simple assault, mere minutes after Officer McKeon told Dexter he wasn't going to jail. Dexter responded to the assault claim with confusion, stating that he didn't lay a hand on his neighbor. Dexter was told then that assault is a threat by words to cause harm, or fear of being an imminent threat, according to Florida law. So Dexter complied with the officer. It was in the police vehicle where Dexter first raised his concerns about accessing his anti-rejection medication that suppresses his immune system so his body won't reject his newly transplanted heart. He told Officer McKeon that he had already missed his noon dose. Dexter mentioned the need for this medication seven times while in the police car. He even tried to negotiate other options like returning to his home or his girlfriend's house that would allow him to stay on track with his medication. 
Officer McKeon advised Dexter to tell the jail about his medical needs. From then on, in the two following days he spent there, Dexter continued to call attention to the doses of his medicine that he was missing by telling the jail nurse and the judge at his bond hearing. When notified at the hearing, the judge simply said, Hopefully you're able to make bond here and get your medication. Dexter eventually posted a $503 bond and was released. He got out, I think Sunday night, he called me that Monday. My father called me and he told me instantly they wouldn't give him his meds. And he was like, I don't want to die, you know? I mean, I knew he had to take the medication, but I didn't think that just those two days would be that diary. Yeah, none of us knew that. On November 23rd, three days after his release, Dexter went to the hospital, as suggested by his son. There, he asked if he should double up on his anti-rejection drugs, given that he had missed some doses. The nurse told him to continue taking the medication as usual to prevent the risk of overdose. Later that day, Dexter, feeling weak, called his home health aide to visit him. Upon arrival, the nurse phoned 911. When the first responders arrived, the aide stepped outside to escort them to Dexter's apartment. But by the time they returned, he was unresponsive. Dexter was taken to a local hospital, where he was soon pronounced dead. When we got the news the night he passed, um, it was me and my stepmom on the phone and, you know, they were like, oh, you guys will have to come identify the body, yada, yada, yada. So it was like literally the day before Thanksgiving. So um, they were like, oh, everything will be closed. After the holidays, we got in contact with them and we uh, tried to get it done. And it was like, oh, well, it's been three days, so we can't do it. So we was like, but when we asked, they was like, you know, contact us on such and such day and we'll, we'll get with it. Which forced us to, um, me and my sister, to do our own. And what did that autopsy find? That he basically died from heart rejection. And when you saw that, what was your reaction? I knew. Yeah, we basically knew from the beginning. That's why we fought so hard to get the autopsy done, because we were fighting against time, and we wanted someone to be held liable, and we needed that medical record to state that this is what it was. Mm. Gosh, yeah. And so it's been months since this happened. You have an autopsy. You have a lawyer. What does it look like to move forward in in seeking justice for your father's wrongful death? So our lawyer, Andrew Bondarud, he's great. (laughs) Since the very beginning, uh, I want to say one of the first few days I spoke to him, he was basically ready to fight. But and. Andrew couldn't move forward until we had that autopsy. So we didn't get the autopsy back, like the full report back until I want to say maybe March or April. And basically once we confirmed with the pathologist what daddy died from, it was basically all guns blazing from there. He's been requesting records from like the sheriff's office, the hospital, here, there, and everywhere, basically. But the biggest issue we run into was that, as Andrew put it, uh, the sheriff's office was stonewalling him, basically refusing to give or taking their time, basically, to give up the information. 
or give up any evidence or records that Andrew might have needed. And, you know, in the end, we're going to file a lawsuit, hopefully by the end of the summer. And, um, you know, we'll see where things go from there. Dexter Berry's death was preventable. Not only has his death sparked major questions about the quality of healthcare overseen by Jacksonville's sheriff's office, but it speaks to the sheer lack of care and consideration that people in prisons face when it comes to healthcare access, only amplified in an importance by the fact that our carceral system is full of people with disabilities who need a higher level of care. Corrine Kendrick, Deputy Director of the ACLU's National Prison Project, is a litigator who advocates on behalf of incarcerated people across the country. We talked with her to weigh in on Dexter Berry's story and help us understand its significance in this larger issue. Unfortunately, Mr. Berry's death, which was completely preventable, is far too emblematic of what we find across the country in terms of the provision or the failure to provide basic medical and mental health care to incarcerated people who are in jails and prisons. And I feel like Dexter's death reveals a system of failures from even the very get-go. I think it's very overwhelming because I think it shows how flawed the system is. Arguably, the police probably didn't need to be involved here in what seemed to be a neighbor feud, if you will. Could you detail some of the other system errors? Sure. So as you pointed out from the very beginning, the fact that the police felt that they needed to get involved in a dispute between two neighbors about Wi-Fi access shows just how so many of our communities are over-policed and all too often the solution to problems is to arrest, incarcerate, and criminalize. Uh, The next system flaw I see is that, you know, when he was arrested and was taken to the jail, he immediately told them at intake to the jail that he had a heart transplant and he needed anti-rejection medicine. And you don't need to be some sort of medical doctor or somebody with training to know how critically important anti-rejection medication is to any person who has a transplanted organ. That's just basic common sense. But that's another problem we see systemically at jails across the country is just this failure to do any sort of intake screening of the people who are coming in. And all too often, they're at a really critical point um, in their medical health or their mental health. And so far too often, we see situations where people come in, they don't get a basic screening. That's another systemic flaw I see with Mr. Berry. And then, you know, there's there's other systemic flaws. The fact that uh, he was being held on such a high bail that it took days and days to raise the money. Um, our system in this country is that if you're wealthy, you can purchase your freedom And if you're not wealthy, you have to spend days, weeks, months in jail while your family scrambles to raise the money that's needed so you can purchase your freedom pending trial. Um, And then finally, you know, the other big systemic problem that I see in his case that we see across the country is uh, the fact that the healthcare is being provided by a for-profit company, 
where the incentive is to deny medical care, to deny especially expensive medications such as anti-rejection meds that cost thousands of dollars. And so as a result, uh, there's a profit incentive for the uh, for-profit correctional health care company to deny care or to slow walk any sort of referral to a specialist or getting the medication. And so again, that's that's a problem we see across the country. That's so disgusting. Oh, gosh. I mean, it just, it's not just bias or negligence. This feels intentional. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing with this facility in particular in, in Jacksonville and the contract with Armor is there are so many sketchy things about it. And, and we've seen that in other parts of the country, too, where they just recently renewed the contract. It was a no-bid contract, no competitive bidding. In 2022, they were found criminally guilty by a jury in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for the neglect and falsification of medical records for a man who died by dehydration. So the DA's office in Milwaukee prosecuted the guards and prosecuted the corporation, which, you know, the CEO, of course, is not going to prison for medical neglect. They're just paying fines. But they failed to disclose this uh, little conviction before they renewed their contract with Duval County. So, you know, and then the state of New York also sued this company and settled for hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's just one of these companies. You know, we, there's other companies. They often change their names, too, um, that have similar similar track records. I want to dig back into Armor Health and some of the other ways that we can hold these contractors accountable. At a high level, there are a few factors that make someone more likely to end up in jail or prison. I think largely people understand this, being poor, being a person of color, but the third one, being disabled, is perhaps lesser known. And I was wondering, Corinne, if you could help us break down this factor. What does you know having a disability or having an illness of any kind have to do with ending up in jail or prison? Sure. So people with disabilities are overrepresented in jails and prisons in the United States uh, compared to the prevalence of people with disabilities in the community. There's nearly 4 in 10 state prisoners and more than 30% of federal prisoners um, have reported having a disability in the most recent data that's available from the U.S. Department of Justice. Women prisoners also are much more likely than men to report having a disability. Approximately 50-50% of uh, female incarcerated people report having at least one disability. Uh, people, it's it's actually three times the rate of um, people with disabilities in the non-incarcerated population. So it's, it's very high. Um, and the most commonly reported type of disability is uh, cognitive disabilities. Um, so that includes intellectual disabilities, learning disorders, autism, dementia, Down syndrome. That's about a, a quarter of all incarcerated people report having one of those. And, you know, if you think about it, a lot of those um, disabilities manifest in ways and behaviors that can be interpreted as being somehow threatening or criminal. And so that's that's part of why um, people with cognitive disabilities often 
wind up being locked up in jails or prisons. So it's not unfair to say that, you know, I think when I think about this, it only, you know, becomes more clear to me why it's important that we have uh, access, good access to healthcare in our carceral system. Right. You know, under the ADA, serious mental illness is considered a disability as well. And I, I do think that's a little more commonly known um, in society that our approach to treating mental illness in this country is to incarcerate people. So depending on the statistics that you're looking at um, and the particular prison or jail system, you know, it can it can vary what percentage of the population have serious mental illness. Um, but roughly speaking, nationally, it's it appears to be anywhere between a third to 40 percent of uh, prison population have a serious mental illness. You know, one that is so severe that it qualifies as a disability under the standards of the ADA. And I think even more broadly than that, like, I mean, if you think about Dexter Berry's situation, right? He might perhaps wasn't targeted by criminalization policies because of his disability, whereas some other people might be. But he also definitely qualifies uh, under the ADA as having a, a disability. So a lot of the kind of chronic conditions that people live with do also qualify under the Americans with Disabilities Act for getting accommodations. What laws or cases you know, even outside of the ADA, provide these kind of protections and rights for those in, in jail and prison when it comes to healthcare access. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled actually unanimously, um, believe it or not, more than two decades ago that the Americans with Disabilities Act applies to incarcerated people. So there's no question or debate there that the ADA applies. There's another Supreme Court case that didn't involve incarcerated people, but it involved people that were in you know, sort of these, um, I guess, you know, institutions uh, for people with disabilities. And it's a case called Olmstead. And in the Olmstead case, uh, the Supreme Court also said that um, under the ADA, uh, people with disabilities who need, you know, that kind of support should be housed in the least restrictive environment possible. And so that's that's an area of law, whether or not you can use that idea of, um, you know, the fact that we don't want to institutionalize people with disabilities, can we use that in prisons and jails to argue that there's less restrictive alternatives um, for the people? Yeah, in, in some ways, it's hard to not just think that we exchanged one problem for another. And I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of your work is focused on on preventing things from becoming or ending up with the same fate as how people were held in institutions. Yeah. It seems that that's like the underpinning of, of a lot here. Yeah. I mean, I think deinstitutionalization was, of course, a very positive development and necessary and a good thing. We did not make the public investments necessary to make sure that community-based alternatives were made available to people with disabilities, especially people with uh, serious mental illness. So while people with disabilities, in particular people with mental health conditions, were no longer living indefinitely in large numbers in these locked away in these institutions, 
unfortunately, many of them began to be swept up into the criminal justice system, often just due to infractions such as being homeless, uh, sleeping in a park, um, you know, whatever. And and so, unfortunately, um, the jails in in the the country and the prisons have become the de facto mental health provider, especially for people who are low income. I mean, even people with insurance in this country struggle to obtain mental health services. So now as a result, the situation is um, people with mental health conditions, um, jails and prisons are now home to probably, depending on the state, anywhere from four to five times as many people with mental health conditions than you find in the state mental health hospitals. You know, it's such a it's such an indictment of our society and how we treat people with mental illness that it's viewed as acceptable and okay. And the the final note I would say on this is, you know, I've over the years I've both at the ACLU and other organizations, I've done a lot of work on juvenile justice and kids who end up in juvenile justice or the child welfare systems. And unfortunately, one sad a uh, commentary that you know I've encountered over the years is that there's such a dearth of uh, intensive mental health services for adolescents and children that in some parts of the country, parents are told the only way your kid can get services, mental health services provided by and paid for by the government, is to have your kid come into the child welfare system. Gosh, it just feels all all the way backwards. Feels like we're treating problems only when they become dire as opposed to any kind of preventative treatment, any kind of access. It just it makes no sense. I want to return to talking about just what it actually looks like to receive medical care within a, a prison system. You've been doing a ton of work throughout your career on this. You've talked about some some of the, the things that you've done. There was also um, a major lawsuit that you were involved in. It was a victory after almost a decade with Arizona's state prison officials. The lawsuit was called Jensen versus Shin, sought to ensure that the nearly 30,000 adults and children in Arizona's prisons receive basic health care in minimally adequate conditions. Can you tell me what prompted this lawsuit and what was the process like to take this over the finish line? Yeah, what prompted the lawsuit is that in 2007, the Arizona state legislature in the budget bill that they passed, which is kind of at the end of the session, the omnibus budget bill, it was slipped in there last minute with no discussion, no debate, it wasn't a standalone bill, a measure that said that the state prison system would privatize its health care, that state employees provide health care. And I want to be clear that the health care was not great, but there wasn't this profit motive. So what happened over that time is that uh, the healthcare staff that were working for the state and the prisons all quit or changed jobs in droves. Because, you know, they were they were government employees, so they had pensions and the like. And and so they transferred to work at other facilities or, you know, other jobs. And so as a result, the health care that was being provided just really went in the toilet. There just was no doctors, no nurses, no psychologists. And so we filed the case in 2011. It was the ACLU 
and the Prison Law Office and the Arizona Center for Disability Law. In 2014, we settled the case. The state agreed to make all these improvements in the delivery of health care. They were on their second health care vendor at that point. And we monitored the case and things were not improving. Then it came out that the uh, the vendors were falsifying data and misreporting information to the department and to us and to the court. The federal judge in the case found the state of Arizona in contempt of court twice and fined them several million dollars for failing to provide basic medical care and mental health care as required in our settlement. And so as a result, we held a trial for three weeks in November and December 2021, where um, we put on evidence, we had um, incarcerated people testify. And so the judge heard all this evidence. And then in 2020, she issued an order finding that the health care violated the Constitution, the Eighth Amendment right to be free of cruel and unusual punishments, that the conditions in solitary were were such. Um, And then in April of this year, the judge issued a very sweeping injunction that requires increased healthcare staffing, um, a complete overhaul of the medical and mental health care, and on the solitary side of things, uh, imposes a presumptive limit of no more than 60 days in solitary and a categorical ban on the use of solitary for children and for people with mental illness. Obviously, the Arizona win is huge because it it accounts for a lot of people. But I I guess I wonder, in your experience of litigating this case and seeing these common sense victories come to fruition, what does that give you for kind of the hope or I guess, where does that leave you when you think about how to how to achieve more victories? Yeah, I think, you know, we have to we have to view this from a multi-pronged approach. And I do think that's what we try to do at the National Prison Project is it's not just uh, suing because um, litigation is messy. It takes forever. And so I think a big piece of what we have to do also is advocacy, legislative advocacy, public education advocacy, you know, spreading the word about who we lock up in this country and why we're locking them up and really pushing people to advocate with policymakers of, you know, why why is it that the only place that you can receive mental health treatment in so much of the country is in jails and prisons? You know, we really need to drill down and question that and make it clear that needs to change and that you know, collectively as a society, we need to call for different things. And I think also another prong is really looking closely at who do we lock up in this country and why are we locking them up? Why is the solution to homelessness to incarcerate people in jails? Over the two decades I've been doing this work, I've always been stunned by the number of people I talk to who work as public defenders even, or district attorneys and prosecutors who have never been in a prison. That's that's part of it, too, is, you know, it's just like, a oh, we're just going to send away our society's problems and just lock it up. And, and then nobody really kind of sees what what the result is. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point that you make. I mean, we have to start by just putting uh, faces and names to this problem, which I think is why 
you know, Dexter's story is so important. And in speaking with his family, it was very clear to me that they they want to see accountability, not just for their dad, but for other families as well. What are the mechanisms that we really have to our disposal to hold jail and prison systems accountable? What can regular people do? Yeah, I think, you know, the advocacy of not building new jails, you know, not expanding jails, um, really kind of pushing to change the policies about bail and why people are being held in, in these conditions and have to purchase their freedom. So starting at the top of the funnel, if you will, keeping people out of jails and prisons from the very get-go. Right, right. You know, that's one huge part of it is, and, and you know, for a while, actually, when, when COVID first hit, a lot of jurisdictions across the country stopped imposing bail except for very serious, violent, or sexual um, charges. So jail populations across the country in the first few months of COVID really plummeted. And there was not an accompanying crime wave. So it, it really kind of showed why why are we locking people up? And so many of the people who are in our jails are there because they can't purchase their freedom. Um, so I think that's one place to start. As we wrap up here today, Kareen, what do you want Dexter's family to know about what happened to him? I mean, first off, I, I want them to know that what happened to them and what happened to their father is really unspeakable. It's a sad thing that it's something that is unfortunately so common. I want them to know that, you know, groups like the ACLU are fighting every day to make sure that what happened to their father and to their family does not happen to other families elsewhere. And also, frankly, would want to thank them for being so public and for calling out the officials in Jacksonville and uh, the Armour Health Corporation for the neglect of their father. Um, because I think all too often in our society, you know, the family members of people who, who die or suffer in prisons and jails are scared to, to be public about it. Or, you know, in some cases, people feel stigma about having an incarcerated loved one and are afraid that they or their loved one is going to be judged. And so just the fact that they are speaking out and humanizing this issue and putting a face on what happens every day in the prisons and jails and detention centers across the country, you know, I'm so appreciative and thankful that they're willing to do that. Janelle and Dexter Jr.'s fight on behalf of their father is as much about justice and systemic change as it is about compassion. A lot of people have a misconception that if you go to jail, you're this bad person, you deserve to be there. A lot of people that are in jail are there under false pretenses, are there for things that they did not do. And unfortunately, the law in America, they say you're innocent until proven guilty, but it's really you're guilty until you're proven innocent. Especially for petty crimes as such, you know. My dad was on a fixed income, so even if he wanted to post his own bond, he couldn't have, you know. But a lot of people from the outside looking in don't really understand what the family's going through or, you know, a lot of people just speak and don't understand, you know, how we feel about the situation or any of that. So I just would like for people to address it as if it was your loved one. You know, would you want to see your family get denied their medication and lose their life because of something so simple? No, 
All right. Just look at it the same way. You don't have to know him. Just look at it as if it was your love. Since we recorded this conversation, the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office has decided to terminate its contract with Armor Correctional Health Services. While this is a win for Dexter's family, more challenges in the county's carceral system may soon be on the horizon. Starting September 1st, NAFCARE, another private medical provider, will take over. Its reputation for poor treatment of people in jails largely mirrors Armour's. This ongoing story reflects the nationwide fight for healthcare access in jails and prisons that persists. Our sincerest thank you to Janelle King and Dexter Berry Jr. for sharing their dad's story, and to Kareen for sharing her expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode informative, please subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Listener note before we say goodbye, At Liberty will be on hiatus during the month of August. New episodes will return the first week of September. We hope you have a great month. At Liberty is a production of the ACLU, produced by me, Kendall Seesmeyer, and Vanessa Handy. This episode was edited by Carrie Daniels. Lila Sheridan is our intern. Until next month, stay strong.